You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hey, it's Amanda. Hey, it's Chelsea. Hey, it's Sarah. And hey, it's Grace. And today we're going to be talking about the story of 14-year-old Sarah Ray Bame. Um, So on July 15th, 1994, Sarah Ray Bame walked out of her Rochester Township home and never returned. Her remains were found near Deerfield Township, Ohio on November 4th, 1994, but they were not officially identified until nearly nine years later. This area, two hours away from Sarah's home, was the resting place of another set of remains. 17-year-old Catherine Menendez was found only half a mile from where Sarah was found on August 25th, 1994, days after she'd gone missing from her Ohio home. Sarah Ray Bame is described as a reserve teen that mostly kept to herself. Despite being on the cheerleading squad and in the band at school, she was shy and quiet. Retired FBI agent Tom Carter says that people have described her as always having her head down and never looking you in the eye. She loved animals and had a great singing voice. She would have been going into the ninth grade in the fall. On the night of July 15, 1994, Sarah's mom Phyllis had to work. She had split from Sarah's father, so Sarah and her older brother Mason were home by themselves that night. At one point, Sarah told her brother that she was going over to their neighbor Jennifer's house that night. The next morning, Sarah missed a scheduled counseling appointment. Do we know what kind of counseling? I don't. I kind of just assumed like a kind of a regular therapy appointment, but I'm not sure. Okay. So her brother Mason called Jennifer's house only to find out that Sarah had not stayed there the night before. So I took it as she just went there to visit, not to stay over. I wonder if uh, Sarah had contacted her brother at all later that night or she just left and that was it. She just left and that was it. Um, It's not super clear whether she said she was just going over to visit or stay the night. It was Jennifer's house was super close and they were friends. So I'm assuming that her family just assumed she had stayed the night and that's what she meant. Okay. Well, and I think too, when I was a kid, I would go hang out with my friends and it might be a last minute decision of like, oh, I'm just going to stay at their house tonight. And I don't know if maybe that I mean, now, when I was a kid and was doing that in the late 90s and early aughts, I would have to call my parents and get permission. But I wonder if it was just kind of if she went over for uh, fun just to hang out and wanted to stay over, she was just kind of always allowed to. So maybe it didn't really strike them at that point for that reason, too. Yeah, that could definitely be part of it. So when her family realized she was missing, um, they contacted Rochester Township PD immediately, and the search for Sarah began. Now, it turns out that Sarah had asked Jennifer if she could come over, but apparently family was visiting and Jennifer wasn't able to hang out. So the question is, where did Sarah go after that? In November, a decomposed body was found in a wooded area near the Berlin Reservoir in a state park in Portage County, Ohio, two hours from Sarah's home in Pennsylvania, about 60 miles south of Cleveland. Unfortunately, it would take almost nine years to identify the body of 14-year-old Sarah Bame, so the search continued as a runaway case. Was there really any reason to consider her a runaway at all, or is it just because she's a teenager? 
Um, there's some reasoning that'll come up in a bit, but I think part of it is that she was a teenager and they just didn't really have a reason at the time to believe it would be a kidnapping or homicide or anything like that, I guess. So that's just how they treated it. So if you're like me, you're asking how the hell does that happen that it took nine years to identify the body? Um, I mean, even in the 90s, apparently a pathologist originally described the body as belonging to a white female, small to medium build with strawberry blonde hair between the ages of 14 to 18, um, which obviously matches Sarah's description. But this was later revised by the same pathologist to between 17 and 22 years of age, about a week later. So when the information was entered into the Doe Network database, along with an image of what she may have looked like when she was alive, um, because of the age difference, the information didn't match up with anyone who had been reported missing. Now, all I can find from the autopsy is that her cause of death was a violent homicide by unknown means, which makes me super sad because... I mean, just because of the decomposition and the way her body was found, they couldn't tell exactly how she was killed. It was just a violent death. Sarah's unidentified remains were kept in the Cayuga County Coroner's Office. I also want to mention that there was hair found near the scene um, where her body was found that was determined to not belong to the victim. They didn't say how much hair I kind of just imagine like a clump of hair behind a bush or something. I don't want to say that's weird because like I shed hair like crazy, but I can't imagine just, I mean, she was found in an outdoor space and there is just this giant clump of hair that happens to be nearby. Um, I wonder, maybe it was just like a couple strands or something. That definitely seems odd, but I feel like, I mean, this whole thing kind of has me baffled. Um, I wonder too, if it's a combination of everything that you mentioned before, and then also just the fact that she was found in a different state. So, you know, immediately they're going to look at, you know, missing people from Ohio, um, not necessarily Pennsylvania, but I'm, I'm also kind of curious about how that age range changed in the opinion. And you said that was only what, like a week later or something that it changed. Yeah. Yep. That's interesting. I'm I'm curious about why. I was going to say, do we know what prompted the change? Yeah, I'm not sure. It just seemed like the pathologist was just like, oops, never mind. And I don't remember if I could find the pathologist's name in my research. Um, so I'm not exactly sure like what their credentials were or, you know, I was joking around like first day on the job, but I'm I'm not sure. What happened there? It makes me wonder, like, if they missed anything else. If they messed up something as simple as an age. Yeah. That's definitely a question. I say that like I do it, and I know that it would be simple to determine, but... um, Yeah, it's just strange that it was correct at first, and then not. I don't know. Interesting. In 1998, a Portage County detective sees a flyer of a missing girl from a Pittsburgh suburb, which was Rochester Township, Sarah Ray Bame. Thinking this may be the girl the body near the reservoir belonged to, he called the Rochester police, but the police chief dismissed it. 
He cited the many reported mistaken sightings of Sarah. At this time, they still believe she was alive because there were a bunch of people that had reported seeing her around, and they just assumed she was probably a runaway. Did he check into it at all? Nope, not worth his time. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it just could have been solved so much sooner, but... There were so many things along the way that really messed up this investigation. In an unrelated incident in 1999, Andrew Gall, assistant chief of detectives for the Beaver County DA's office, says that six years after Sarah disappeared, Sarah's father, Jack Milton Bame Jr., admitted to indecently assaulting a girl under 13 years of age. So raping a child. Like, I just hate that in and of itself. But then that's part of the legal history of the father of this missing teen. I, I, that sketch, I don't like that at all. I mean, the fact that she was quiet and kept to herself and didn't really make eye contact can all be signs of abuse. So it doesn't really shock me that her dad's a Chester. It's fair. Yeah. That, um, theory has definitely been thrown around on Reddit and web sleuths quite a bit that, she was showing signs of abuse, but um, that could be due to other reasons, which we'll find out in a little bit. It was while he was questioning BAME that the assistant chief of detectives realized that Sarah was still missing because I guess they just hadn't followed up in a while. Uh, So that's when the investigation ramped up again. In 2000, the Beaver County DA's office joined the investigation. Finally, Sarah's case was being treated as a homicide investigation. They followed up on hundreds of leads, many of them sightings that were obviously false. Investigators excavated the floor of Sarah's father's second home, which was next door to her mother's, which is where she was living. They also tore down the walls, but apparently never found what they were looking for, which I'm assuming was her body. So you need a reason to get a warrant to search someone's house. Just kind of like a cursory search, what information could they have had that they got permission to excavate floors and tear down walls? I'm assuming some pretty damn good evidence. Yeah, it's really, it's not looking great for her dad. And I just want to make it clear that he was never officially, at least publicly named a suspect, but he's still a piece of shit. So I have no problem saying that. They could have had a search warrant relating to like the sexual assault of that child. Like maybe they were looking for evidence of like photographs because a lot of people, you know, keep souvenirs of that stuff. So I don't know. Maybe that's a possibility. I don't know why you would excavate walls, but yeah, they tore his shit up. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if it was, again, kind of like Amanda, what you just said, if it was related more to that versus Sarah, it's possible that if he had done any sort of remodel in the house, that they would want to see what was there before it was remodeled, thinking that he might be, like you said, hiding souvenirs or um, depending on the extent of what happened in the child case that he admitted to they might have been looking for something specific that he could have stashed somewhere the thought of it makes my stomach turn and i don't want to think about it too much but i mean it definitely could have been just related to that part of his history and maybe not necessarily related to sarah um 
like but I could, video you know, camera on the wall kind of thing. Yeah, anything like that. Yeah, for sure. In 2001, a now-retired Beaver County detective, Kim Clements, was searching the Doe Network for anyone matching Sarah's description. She came upon the human remains that hunters had found in the woods near the Berlin Reservoir in November of 1994. That's when the FBI got involved, and in 2003, Sarah's body was finally identified. So why did it take so long for an identification, even though they found this match in 2001? Uh, So a swab was taken from Sarah's mother's mouth and sent for testing against a sample from Sarah's femur. But then September 11th occurred, and all of a sudden there was a massive backlog at the FBI as they were trying to identify thousands of victims. There was also an issue with an insufficient DNA sample the first time they attempted to test it. So I can kind of understand where that issue could be. I mean, especially if it wasn't a great DNA sample, it might show partial matches or, you know, anything like that. Um, But I feel like if Kim was able to connect the report of the human remains and the fact that Sarah was missing, it probably could have been connected before. Um, But again, it might just be the fact that now Beaver County DA's office was involved and, you know, Kim Clements was a part of that team. So um, I I feel like it probably could have been connected sooner, but also maybe not when especially you consider a lot of police departments are and have been short staffed for a long time. Um, So it might just be that because she dedicated herself to this case only, she was able to kind of find more of those parallels versus other investigators that might have had five, six, seven cases. I mean, it's it's never good to miss that connection, but maybe a little bit more understandable when the connection was only made by someone that was fully invested in only that one case. Yeah. And then remember, too, that, you know, after the initial kind of search for her, it went kind of like cold immediately and it wasn't treated as a homicide case until the Beaver County um, DA's office joined. And they kind of just like picked up the slack because there's a lot of talk about the initial investigation. And obviously since, since it was treated as a runaway case for so many years, I don't think anyone was thinking about that. I mean, when the police chief just brushed off that, um, Ohio officer, he didn't even think it was a possibility. So yeah, I think the early part of the investigation definitely had a ton of issues. So Yeah, that makes sense. Sarah's family had a funeral for her in 2006 and finally laid her to rest. She is interred at a cemetery in Sylvania Hill, PA. In 2009, authorities put up billboards with Sarah and Catherine's faces in PA and Ohio. And if you remember um, Catherine from my introduction, she is, um, her body was also found in the same area as Sarah's. So I'll get to her in a moment. In November 2011, authorities released the contents of a note or letter that Sarah had written before she went missing. 
What's interesting about this, before we even get into the contents of the letter, is that Sarah's immediate relatives, which I'm assuming means her parents and her brother, told the police that they had searched all over the house and found no clues. But when Sarah's uncle searched the house, they found the note under a pillow on Sarah's neatly made bed, which apparently was not typical for her to have her bed neatly made. There were five unidentified fingerprints on the envelope, along with a lipstick smudge belonging to Sarah's father's girlfriend, or wife, it's unclear, at the time, Marianne Good. Yeah, it's weird. Um, I mean, maybe not so much the lipstick smudge, because I know, I mean, who's to say that she didn't, you know, borrow her stepmom's or her dad's girlfriend's lipstick or something at some point and it could have been smudged on a piece of paper that she had um i think what's so weird is that you're searching all around the house you find nothing but then another relative comes in and they can find it right away and i'm sorry what 14 year old makes their bed neatly every day and would just have a letter under the I don't know that it it seems weird to me my husband's 35 and still doesn't make his bed I don't make my bed now (laughs) I'm 27 I don't make my bed so there's that I make mine every day (laughs) I know (laughs) I'm thinking if it was so unusual for her bed to be made that that's probably one of the first places you would look for things so right it doesn't make Maybe sense to me. They didn't want to disturb it. I mean, well, there's that too. It's made so, like, maybe in your mind you're thinking, "Oh, it couldn't be there because it's so neat and tidy." Yeah, maybe. Know. Did they match the handwriting to confirm it was Sarah's letter? I didn't see anything about that. I was wondering that as well, because um, you'll see um, a little later on that her family was a little uncooperative with police. Um, so in handing over, say like writing samples from Sarah, I don't know if they would have done that, but I'm sure they could have like gone to her school and, you know, gotten something, but I, I didn't read anything about that. An FBI spokeswoman said that the fingerprints did not offer any helpful leads, but I don't believe she mentioned the lipstick smudge. So that could have been something. This letter found not long after Sarah went missing, convinced the police that she was a runaway. The letter was in an envelope labeled, To Whoever Cares. The letter mentions that Sarah felt like a burden, didn't think that anyone noticed her amid other family issues, and that she was planning to run away. She also mentioned that she had been in an abusive relationship with an older man. Was she known to date an older man, or is the consensus that this is her dad? Um, Looking at the letter, I don't think that she was referring to her dad. But as far as, you know, her dating history and everything, that was never confirmed. And actually, we'll find out that we have no idea who this guy even was and if he ever even existed. So there's really no confirmation of that. Then DA Anthony Baroche says that it is apparent some of the text is missing and that it appears that someone put two separate writings together to look like one. And the letter is also written in four different inks. I'll post a link to the full text on our socials so you can peek into Sarah's life yourselves. 
Um, and thankfully, Amanda found a link to a photo of the original letter. So I will be posting that as well. It's unknown who the letter was written to, as it mentions her mother and brother. Um, DA Anthony Baroche was skeptical regarding the validity of the letter. Okay, so y'all know this is my wheelhouse. So Do your thing. I'm kind of pumped <laughs> that there is a full letter. Um, so I'll kind of rant and ramble and feel free to cut me off if I tend to go too far beyond anything. Um, a couple things to note, first of all, are I know like Amanda asked about the handwriting before. Um, it's hard, especially with a teenager, to really analyze handwriting for continuity. Um, if somebody tried to analyze my handwriting for continuity, it would be difficult. Um, my students are in eighth grade, so they're all 13, 14, 15. And, you know, between different assignments, the same kid could turn three separate assignments in and it might look like it was written by three different people. So it's a little bit tough in that age anyway. Um, but then we also can look at the linguistic structure of how she's writing. And we could, if we had access to things that she had written before, we could look at some of those structural pieces. If we had a diary, um, maybe not like a school paper because it's a different type of writing. Uh, academic writing is obviously going to look a lot different than, you know, a letter you're leaving for your family to say, peace, I'm out. Um, but if we had, you know, a diary that we could look at entries from, it could help with figuring out kind of the, the continuity or discontinuity of the sentence structure. So there's a couple interesting things that I noticed about the letter itself. And overall, it doesn't sound like a 14-year-old wrote this. I did get in touch with some of the other eighth grade teachers that I work with. And, um, you know, we have kids from all different levels. We've been teaching all of us for five plus years. And, you know, all of us said, I've never really seen a 14-year-old write something like this. It sounds like it came from someone who is mid-20s or older, just as far as the way that that words and sentences are organized. Some things that are kind of weird, and Grace, I know you mentioned this uh, when you said, you know, we couldn't quite tell who it was written to. In the beginning of the letter, she writes, I've already learned you don't have time for me and that you don't care. I've been forced to grow up in ways you don't realize. And then the next sentence says, when my brother and my mother went crazy, everybody forgot about me. Um, so it kind of leaves us with who is this you, if she's writing to her family, to her brother, to her mother, she's not going to use you and then switch to saying my brother and my mother, there's inconsistency there. What it could mean is that maybe she was writing to dad, uncles, friends, somebody else that would be in the house just other than her brother and her mother. Um, and this would have been in her father's house, right? Because she was at her father's that night. 
I was under the impression that she was at her mother's because that's where she lived with her brother. Okay. Did I he, wasn't sure. Did she have a boyfriend? Well, that's what's in question, too, because she had talked about this abusive this relationship guy. and he was never identified or located. Um, so it was never confirmed that she was dating anyone. And um, another thing, too, is knowing that, you know, the envelope said to whoever cares or is that? Yeah. To whoever cares. And she's naming, well, not naming, but saying my brother and my mother, she's kind of inferring there like, oh, they don't care. So whoever's reading this, I know it's not that person. Um, but then there's a couple like small little language things like um at one point she uses double quotes around a sentence and at other times she uses single quotes um which there is a difference between them not too many 14 year olds are going to accurately use single quotes versus double quotes correctly and really you could just use double quotes for both of these it doesn't need to be in single quotes um and then it mentions here that she quit eating. She was always passing out, but everybody couldn't see that. There's a line about nobody noticing bruises or saying that she fell. Do we know if there's any validity to that based on your research, Grace? Like, Based on my research, none of these claims in the letter were ever substantiated. Okay. Uh, there is a tone switch at one point. It goes from kind of how you would imagine thoughts to flow out of your mind into more of that kind of academic style. Um, just kind of a, a switch in tone. Like she wrote it at two different times or um, it was written for two different purposes. And I know we mentioned this thought that maybe they were two separate things that were spliced together. Um, we had four different types of ink, all of those sorts of things. Um, based on the writing itself, it seems like that's definitely a possibility. Um, she also gets very specific about how she's going to be successful. The beginning of the letter, she starts with this, I'm horrible. Everybody hates me. It starts to sound like a suicide note. But then by the time you get about halfway through the letter, she gets into these specifics. Don't worry, I'll survive. Maybe I'll even be a cardiologist or a musician. And cardiology is really specific. I mean, I've asked some of my kids what they want to do when they grow up, and they might say a doctor or they might say, you know, I want to be an athlete or I want to you know, play football in the NFL, or lately all my kids want to be YouTube superstars. Um, but I have to wonder, like, that's so specific. You know, it's not like she says, maybe I'll be a cardiologist or play guitar in a rock band. It's this really specific cardiologist and then this really broad musician. Um, and then... Somewhere else, it mentions that again in the letter, specifically says, maybe I'll be a musician or a cardiologist. So restating it and still being just as specific, um, 
is a little interesting. Um, and then the, kind of the last thing that I want to point out just so I don't take 10,000 years is she mentions in this letter, she says, by the time you read this note, I'll be gone. Maybe to D.C. or New York City. And then in parentheses, she writes, I haven't decided yet. And then that's where maybe I'll be a musician or a cardiologist comes in again. Um, if she has this plan, she has this goal set for herself. She's leaving. She knows she's going. Doesn't quite know what she's doing, but knows that she's leaving. I mean, New York City is north and D.C. is south. So to to start your process of leaving, you have to know what direction you're going. So it seems odd that if she truly was just trying to run away, that she would give partial clues because either you're going to tell them where you're going to be or not. It's odd to have this partial piece, but then also to have it be two completely separate directions and say, here's the letter I'm leaving but not actually say, like, I know where I'm going, you'll have to find me, but naming two cities that are two opposite directions. Um, I can um, type all of this up, and we can put it as part of the blog on the website so that I don't continue to rant and ramble for the next 10 minutes. Um, so you guys can definitely check it out there on the website. It won't be on socials, but it'll be on our blog on kccpod.com. Um and I can kind of throw some more thoughts there. But those are kind of the big ones that come from this letter. Um, all in all, it does not seem like it was written for the purpose that it's being shown off for. Maybe she did write it. Um, there's too many missing pieces that make it seem like this is not supposed to be one cohesive letter presented in the way that it was. Well, thank you, Mrs. Letterman. <laughs> and I think it's weird, too, considering... The circumstances. So she writes this note that she's going to run away. Then she's going to her friend's house and she legitimately asks if she can come over, but her friend just happens to have company. And then there's nothing that says she took things with her. Like you're 14, you're not going to take money, you're not going to take clothes. It just, it doesn't add up for me. It's sketch. Yes. Did they question the girlfriend at all? Like her friend? I believe so, um, because there is, you know, that report of her saying that, you know, she did ask to come over, but I had family. So I'm I'm assuming the police must have talked to her since that was the last place she was seen, allegedly. It's, so it's super confusing to me. Like, I can understand picking New York City for acting, modeling, millions of other things, but like. Playing guitar to me is Nashville, and why would you go to D.C.? Are you going to play on the street for the politics? Like, I don't... Politicians? Like, why? Why What is in D.C.? Like Maybe I, D.C. was to become a cardiologist, and New York City was to become a musician. Is there a good cardiology school? Like, she's how old? She has to finish high school priorities woman like i'm just trying to think like why pick those two places because to me it doesn't make sense to pick places like that also if she did write it she was 14 True. so yeah logic may not fully be there i mean new york city with broadway there is a lot of music so you know they're could be and they're both big cities with hospitals so mm -hmm. 
but also so's philly and that's a lot close and apparently she was really into singing specifically because that's what was mentioned by her family that she was really into so i mean that part does make sense just from what i've seen but when i was a kid my goal was to move into new york city live in new york city and be on broadway and that was when i was close to that age because i was so into music and theater that you know i knew that that's where i wanted to go for it clearly that's not what i did but um i mean it's it's possible that she could have had that thought but i feel like it would have been a little bit more specific in the letter then like one specific place that you dream about going right right that yeah i'm just thinking back to when i was 14 and making terrible decisions and but didn't we all <laughs> just trying to apply it to this situation somehow <laughs> so in november 2015 authorities combed the area in ohio um that wooded area where her body was found in the state park looking for new clues specifically the hoop earrings that sarah always wore but they were not found with her body but they turned up nothing also did i mention In 1993, 10 months before she went missing, Sarah claimed she was the victim of an attempted abduction. She gave an interview about this to a TV station. But did she report it to the police? I'm assuming so. Um, You know, it didn't say that specifically. I was just kind of assuming since she gave a TV or a news interview that it was. But I don't have hard proof of that. Okay. She said she was thinking, please, God, don't let him kill me. Some believe that this was a made-up story, one to explain away injuries from her abusive boyfriend, maybe. Did she give a description of the person or what exactly happened? There's probably more to the news clip than I saw from what I found. I just found a very short clip, but I don't think that there were a lot of details given. Despite the fact that the two cases may or may not be related, I just want to mention a few things about Catherine Menendez's case, which has been mentioned as a parallel investigation to Sarah's. Um, This is a very polarizing theory because there are some authorities that really believe that these two cases are connected because the bodies are found in the same area. And there's also um, quite a few people and authorities that don't think they're connected. But I do just want to mention that Catherine's body was found completely nude about half a mile from where Sarah's body was found just a few days after Catherine had gone missing on August 25th, 1994. And just to remind you, Sarah's body was found in November of 1994. According to her autopsy, she had been, okay, trigger warning, because this is pretty intense. According to her autopsy, she had been strangled beaten with fists, stabbed with a screwdriver, and cut with a knife. Um, I can't find a report confirming whether or not she was sexually assaulted. Um, when I saw about this autopsy, they still hadn't determined yet, and I, I didn't see really any updates. So her actual cause of death was determined to be strangulation. A reporter investigating her case was warned not to look at the incredibly gruesome crime scene photos. That being said, her mother was asked to come to the woods when the body was found to identify her. She apparently went behind police barriers out of view of the media and moments later started screaming. 
I cannot even imagine something being too graphic for people to look at photos of, but pulling the mother of this poor girl in to identify her. I mean, I get identification is necessary. You have to have that. But I mean, the, I, I don't know much about what happens on a crime scene, but I feel like you don't just let people wander in to identify. And what if it wasn't her daughter and it was another missing girl's mom who then had to see this? It it absolutely breaks my heart that her mom had to see that. You would think that they would typically clean up the body first, or at least the ones that I've been with, they clean up the body first, unless it was found by a family member. Right. It just seems cruel to have a mom go through that or anyone go through that. And that's just kind of the initial identification because I'm pretty sure they have to go through forensics anyway to officially identify it, if I'm not mistaken. Right. So I guess as a mother, you would want to know right away if that was your child because it, it would take a little bit longer to forensically identify her, but just to spare her having to see that, I mean, it's it's not really the point of the story, but it's just, that's just awful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what, that's what we saw with the Linda Steisfeld's case. Yep. Um, I know I just butchered her last name. Stolfus. I'm German, Stolfus. but I can't pronounce German Stolfus. words. Um, but I mean, that's kind of how it was with them. I mean, you know, the family was saying, no, it's her, but forensics was saying, no, we need to wait until we officially declare it. So I would, I think you're right in that. Um, it's, oh my gosh, it just still breaks my with, heart. Um, Linda too, though, she was probably fairly decomposed. And I think that they identified her mostly by her clothing. And Catherine was That's only true. dead for a few days. But I mean, yeah, okay. I see what you're saying. The parallels definitely. That's true. So Catherine was found face down in the dirt, completely nude. Her clothing was never located. That And that points to a serial killer a little bit to me, just because of the whole trophy thing. But, I mean, who, who knows? True. Portage County Coroner Roger Marcial estimated that she had died about 36 hours before she was found and that the wooded area was only a secondary dumping site. In other words, she had clearly been killed somewhere else. The teen was from nearby Alliance, Ohio, and had apparently run away many times. So this kind of leads me to think that the girls, meaning Catherine and Sarah, may have been picked up by a serial killer. Maybe he had picked up Catherine while she was hitchhiking and then straight up abducted Sarah. But that's just my thoughts. Catherine had previously attended Alliance High School, but had just transferred to West Branch High School. She was a habitual runaway, and local police had a history of missing person reports of her. I really haven't found any updates on her since late 1994. In later articles, her name is only mentioned in conjunction with Sarah. Catherine had reportedly been on her way to a friend's house in Deerfield, which is part of the reservoir grounds. And then also West Branch High School is right above the reservoir. So just something to mention. But I mean, I just kind of felt like I really had to mention her because her name has just dropped off unless it's really in conjunction with Sarah Beam. So we're going to get into some theories now. 
So the first theory is a serial killer, whether the girls had run away or were hitchhiking. There were multiple truckers charged with murders during this time in this area. So Webb's loose member, Oh, What a Tangled Web, linked to an article about Samuel Legg, originally of Arizona, but at the time was based in Ohio, who was charged with a cold case rape from 1997 of a teenage girl, the cold case murder from 1992 of Sharon Lynn Kadzierski, and the cold case murder from 1997 of Julie Kunkel. So Samuel Legg was a long-haul trucker which kind of explains away a couple of things about Sarah's case to me. Just some details about Sharon's murder. So according to public records, Leghead lived in Southern Arizona for years, including multiple addresses in Tucson, Sierra Vista, and Benson. Most recently, police records show Leghead been living in Chandler. On April 9th, 1992, a woman's body was found at a truck stop on I-90 near Route 46 in Austintown, Ohio, according to the Ohio Attorney General. The woman was listed as a Jane Doe for more than two decades after her body was found just west of Youngstown. Authorities say the woman died from multiple blunt force injuries to the head, face, and chest. Her official cause of death is listed as asphyxiation. According to an article from The Vindicator in 2013, authorities said the woman appeared to have been killed at a different location and then dumped in the woods near the truck stop. She was found by a woman walking her dog. Police at the time told the paper that the woman's body had been there for around a day, possibly two, before she had been found. What's interesting about this is that Sharon was from Florida, which makes me think that the obvious answer to how does a young girl from PA end up two hours away in Ohio is a truck driver. So um, one of his other victims, Julie... On October 23rd, 1997, Conkle's body was discovered deceased behind an abandoned truck stop located on Old US 41 and Russell Road in Russell, Ohio. Following an autopsy, Conkle's death was ruled a homicide caused by asphyxiation by manual strangulation. Her case eventually went cold after all leads were exhausted. In 2006, authorities said DNA collected from Conkle's body linked to a 1996 homicide in Wood County, Ohio. In 2012, DNA matched again with a 1992 homicide in Mahoning County, Ohio. Leg was connected to these crimes through familial DNA. The method in which he was found to be a suspect is not that different from how the Golden State Killer suspect and suspects in other recent cold cases were caught. And then, unfortunately, in 1990, a 21-year-old leg was interviewed in the homicide case of his 14-year-old stepdaughter, Angela Hicks. Angela disappeared in late July, and her partially mummified body was found in a wooded area in Elira on August 30th that same year. According to newspaper reports at the time from the Chronicle Telegram, Angela was found lying naked in a fetal position with several articles of clothing nearby. Leg was given a polygraph test, but charges were never filed. So what's fun about this guy is that he was found incompetent to stand trial for the murder of Sharon, um, and it's unclear whether the other jurisdictions will attempt to indict him. There are some things here that seem to align with these cases that we've been talking about mainly this strength you know like brute force strength with that history of inflicting trauma um having the asphyxiation i don't love it 
as a theory, um, I think it could be viable. I feel like we also always go right to the truck drivers because it just explains so much. <laughs> and to be fair, I mean, there were a lot of truck drivers that were. No, I'm not saying that truck drivers are bad people. Please do not come at me. I'm just saying they're horrible. They're the time, worst. I'm just kidding. Especially. I'm married to one. <laughs> Sorry, Brendan. So there were a couple other convicted um, murderers in the area. I won't go into quite as much detail, but just to touch on them. Sean Patrick Goebel was arrested in April of 1995. He had at least three victims in North Carolina and Tennessee. He was also a long-haul trucker. There's a list of victims in Ohio that may have been murdered by Goebel. Um, their names are not on the list, but I'm just saying there are a lot in Ohio that are attributed to him. There was Larry Duane Hall, who was arrested in November of 1994. He had 14 confirmed murders, but up to 54 were possibly committed by him. And I believe they were mostly in the Midwest. He was 31 and living with his parents in Indiana when he was arrested. He had an IQ of 80. There is a book about this, but I haven't read it. Uh, it's called Urges, A Chronicle of Serial Killer Larry Hall by Christopher Hawley Martin, which was written in 2010, if you're interested in that theory more. So according to Thomas Carter, an FBI agent investigating the case for the Pittsburgh field office, there have been suspects over the years, and some of them have still not been ruled out, um, but I haven't seen any of them named publicly. He also points out that the area where her body was found was so remote you would have to be familiar with the area to get there. Um, it was frequented by a lot of hunters, so just throwing that out there, but it was also the whole reservoir area was pretty popular for families and pretty much any sort of outdoor recreation. Sarah's uncle, Kevin Bame, insists that Sarah would not have run away and that someone must have taken her. So I don't know really how valid this theory is, but it is pretty weird. Um, Danny Jenkins, 51-year-old hunter that claimed to have been one of the hunters that discovered Sarah's body. Three years later, he would go on a hunting trip with two buddies and shoot them point blank with a shotgun and steal $5,000. Jeez. No one has ever connected him to either of the girl's murders, as in Sarah's or Catherine's, but he is serving a life sentence for the murder of his hunting buddies. It was later discovered that he had lied about being one of the hunters that discovered Sarah's body. So I have questions. One, why lie about that and put yourself at the place where her body was found? And who takes $5,000 with them on a hunting trip? No idea. I mean, if they were going out, like, beyond... Now, like, when my husband goes hunting, he goes and hunts on my in-law's land. So, you know, or, you know, we have friends that go hunting that go to, like, a cabin that they own. But if they are uh, renting a cabin to go hunting or something and would be afraid to leave valuables in the cabin, maybe I think it's a stretch, but that's the only thing I can think of. But that's got to be a heavy load to be carrying when you're already carrying a ton of other things with you to hunt. Yeah. Right. They strapped to me. I just want to know more about this story. <laughs> I mean, $5,000 isn't that much as far as like, if it's in all hundreds, that's it's true. only going to be a stack, maybe quarter of an inch, third of an inch. It's not like a huge stack. I mean, it's 
more than you would just fold up in your wallet. But I guess you'd feel safer because you have guns on you. But like, I don't like carrying around a hundred dollars in cash. It makes me so nervous. So I don't know. Well, clearly, just, he wasn't safe. He got shot. Hard for me to imagine. And was it both of the hunters that had, or was it split? Like one carried twenty five hundred, and the other carried twenty five hundred. I don't know. It didn't like, say. <laughs> I can't, it doesn't cost that much to fix a gun or butcher a deer or it doesn't right. make sense to carry that much money. Well, either way, who knows? I don't think he had anything to do with it. It was just a weird situation. So there is definitely reason to believe that the murders of Catherine Menendez and Sarah Bain may not be related. Ohio Mysteries podcast did an episode including two other victims that were found very close to these two in the Ohio woods um, at slightly different times. The other two were killed by a sniper. No one has ever been charged, and it's a really interesting story, but out of our jurisdiction. So you can go check out Ohio Mysteries podcast if you want to hear more about that. But it does cause some doubt about Catherine and Sarah being related just because they were found close to one another. I mean, it, it could be just a really good place to hide bodies. Uh, I saw some Redditors that were local to the area describe it as creepy and unsettling, especially in the winter months. Yeah, and I don't know. I'm kind of thinking maybe they're not as related as we're making them. Um, I mean, definitely some similarities. I don't know that I would have ever connected them, but, you know, I'm also not Amanda who manages to connect 7,000 cases together all the time, which listeners, you guys will hear that coming up. There's a couple multi-part episodes that <laughs> we'll cover. Um, but I mean, people are sick. I think it it's quite possible that two sick people committed two separate murders, but I mean, maybe, maybe they are the same. I, I just think that they are two separate cases. I mean, the two in Ohio to me don't sound like they would be similar because if they were killed by a sniper, I don't think Catherine or Sarah showed bullet wounds, correct? No. And that's kind of what I meant, like, to show that they're probably not, they may not be related just because they're in the same area because this sniper definitely didn't have anything to do with the other, with Sarah or Catherine. Right. Yeah. And like the idea is, you know, if they, Catherine was the first one. So if she was killed and he hit her body up there, he could have, I mean, most of them are creatures of habit and they might go back to the same place. And he didn't realize if he was a trucker and out of the area, maybe he didn't realize like how far he had, had walked in and that the other body was discovered and he went back. Like if it's don't brick, if it's, if it's not broke, don't fix it kind of mentality, like go back until you get caught or, or whatnot. And then maybe after he put Sarah there is when he realized that the first body had been identified and he was like, oh shit, like I need a new hiding spot. There's definitely arguments for both sides. So I have a feeling too, that authorities may know more than they're letting out there. It seems like maybe they're getting fairly close. Maybe that's me being hopeful, but <laughs> just we're always hopeful that they'll be solved. I know. <laughs> I feel like we always run into that, too, with working with, you know, unsolved cases that there is a lot that the, the police and investigators keep close to their chest just because 
when it's unsolved, you don't want to throw every single detail out. Right. Because you you want to keep some of that back. Yeah. And people don't think that a lot of false confessions happen either, but they do all the time. So you oh, definitely yeah. want to have some of that information to see if they really know what they're talking about. So Web Sleuth member Bev1228 mentions that if you map Rochester, PA to Alliance, Ohio, and then Alliance to Berlin Lake, Ohio, there are several major truck routes. Route 14, Route 62 are two big ones, but also there are many natural gas properties throughout the areas Sarah and Catherine lived. These natural gas wells have to be checked on periodically to make sure they are still pumping natural gas. Usually after a time, the natural gas wells go dry. Once that happens, the owner of that property loses the royalties paid to them by the gas companies. So it's one reason the gas companies have to keep checking on them. Many times locals in these areas are given a route and do their routine inspections of these gas wells. Rochester is just under 90, a 90-minute 90 drive from Berlin Lake. If one has a natural gas inspection route, a two-hour drive is nothing when you live in these rural areas. I hope they considered what natural gas companies in both the Alliance and Rochester area and the records of their natural gas well inspection. So is this theory pointing out that somebody in, in one of these natural gas companies may be involved? I mean, I know like on my street, probably 90% of the houses have natural gas, but you know, when I go walk through the park that we have and there's woods behind the park, I, people aren't finding, you know, dead bodies there. I guess she's just pointing out a specific type of trucker to explain who may have been in the area and why Sarah ended up so far away from home. I I honestly really think that if it wasn't someone who knew her personally, it was a trucker or just someone who travels a lot just because of the logistics of the whole thing. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, if you saw a gas company truck, would you feel like less guarded, I guess, versus like just a random truck with like no labeling the side? Would you trust a gas company person more? Probably. Probably. I don't even like driving next to a damn, uh, um, truck with gas on it. I'm terrified it's going to blow up. I want to get in one. Fair. <laughs> That's true. I, I think the the idea is that they're familiar with those areas is what we're yeah. getting at. Yep. So I found some great discussions on Reddit. Um, a lot of the links posted didn't work anymore, unfortunately. A lot of them were from five years ago, which is right around the time investigators were really picking up the case. That's when they were looking for more evidence in the state park in Ohio. Um, unfortunately, they didn't find anything. There was one article from TribLive.com from 2015 about how weird her family acted throughout the investigation, and I didn't find most of this information anywhere else, but according to this article, Sarah's mother, Phyllis Williams, actually refused to give her DNA to compare to Sarah's remains and wouldn't return police's phone calls, and I mean, to that I say to be fair, if she had sought the advice of a lawyer— they may have told her to do this. So just keep in mind that could be a possibility. Yeah. The article also claims that Sarah's brother Mason changed his story about the night she disappeared, but does not provide any further information or explanation. So Marianne Good, who was Sarah's father Jack's ex, 
allegedly said that the last time she saw Sarah, the side of her face had been purple like she'd been punched. When Marianne asked her what was wrong, Sarah just kept her head down and didn't say anything. Then there's the letter that was found by Sarah's uncle that we had talked about earlier. Um, after an allegedly thorough search of her mother's home, it also says that the family didn't turn the letter over right away. And when they did, Jack Bame only provided a photocopy. Is that really their call to make? I mean, that it's weird. Like, why would you just like maybe a photocopy for yourself? But <laughs> why would you not hand over the real copy? Yeah. Why go to all why to go to the trouble of copying it if you can just. And then that makes me think back to like. If they only got the photocopy, then how? What evidence did they get off of it other than the handwriting? You so know they, what I mean, they did get the actual physical letter eventually. So once they did get their hands on the real thing, they realized that the bottom of the second page had been torn off, and that's never been recovered. Also, Sarah kept a journal that was never located or turned in by the family. So I don't know how they found out that they had a that she had a journal, but. I think that's super weird. If she did, that could probably have a lot of clues in it. A few of the false sightings of Sarah that were reported over the years to the police came from family members, not immediate family members in her household, but I believe cousins. And of course, we already know that Sarah's dad was a pedophile. And I will note that I watched a short documentary about Sarah's case and both her brother and uncle participated So it's not like they're trying to hide. So I just thought I'd throw that out there, but just some weird behavior. So I have kind of two questions, and I guess they, in a sense, can kind of morph into one. But the first one, do we know if her dad was ever investigated in this um, just because of the existing pedophilia um charges and number two do we know anything and i know we we talked about this a little bit before but about this abusive ex um do we know for sure that it even was an ex and not just someone abusing her and it getting blamed on an ex did she actually have a boyfriend or i don't know i mean she was going into ninth grade like i said before i teach eighth grade uh while i've certainly have had students that are in relationships, be it a good relationship or a bad relationship. Um, and I, I definitely have students that are dealing with different traumas from their life. It's not overly common for a 14 year old to be abusing another 14 year old and it to just go unnoticed. Um, it, it would be seen, um, in some way, shape or form. Um, I mean, and really, if you go back into the nineties, I mean, you didn't really have kids dating the way they do today and, you know, anything like that, especially at 14. Um, now that doesn't mean it didn't happen, but just kind of throwing all of that out there just as kind of what was rolling through my brain. Yeah. So, I mean, as far as her dad, like I said, he was never publicly named a suspect, um, He was never arrested for anything. I asked Amanda to pull up his um, 
like arrest records. And the only thing I saw was about that charge with the, um, the young girl. So, I mean, like we were talking about his house was at least it said his second home, which is strange, I guess, but, um, that was right next door to her mother's. So that was searched. And we were, you know, talking about whether they were searching the house because of the charge against the child or because of what happened with his daughter. So I'm really not sure to what extent they looked into him. He did pass away in 2016, fortunately or unfortunately. So we may never know too much more about that unless they can get more forensic evidence. Um, and then as far as this abusive older boyfriend, like I said before, he was never identified or located. It was never mentioned if she had a dating history, any of her like ex-boyfriends, no one was ever named. There's a lot of missing pieces to this that I have a feeling maybe a lot of it is just information that the police is not putting out there publicly because it's just things that you feel like they had to have asked. So I think there's just things that we don't know. I know like some victims of abuse within a family tend to like quote love their abuser and I've seen where the dad or like the stepdad figure or boyfriend um, would say to the kid, like, you do this because you love me. So maybe when um, the girlfriend stepped into the dad's life, it changed things a little bit more to like a mental, physical abuse versus sexual abuse. And because he was satisfied somewhere else. And the letter talks about not needing them and that she was good on her own. So my interpretation is that she was like upset with some kind of change in her life and felt unwanted, which kind of lines up with like the abuse at home or like someone in the family. If she wrote the letter. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a really valid point. It's sad either way. Agree. Yeah, for sure. So FBI acting special agent in charge, Greg Nelson, said in a written statement, we haven't forgotten about this case. The FBI will never stop investigating this case. We want to bring closure to the community and allow, allow this teenager to rest in peace. If you have any information about the murder of Sarah Ray Bame, you can contact the FBI in Pittsburgh at 412 412- Four three two, four thousand, or in Cleveland at two one six, five two two one four zero zero. Tips can remain anonymous, and a monetary reward is being offered for information leading to the successful identification and prosecution of anyone responsible for the murders. That's all we have for this episode of the Keystone Cold Cases podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by me, Grace. Find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. Theme music by Darren Makins, production assistance from Darren Makins. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out.